Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Hey, everybody. This is a heads up that this episode includes discussions of sexual consent, or lack thereof. So keep that in mind when you're listening. Yeah, we're going to be talking specifically about the maybes that come up in sex and how to navigate those, which, to be clear, is different from coercion and manipulation in sex. But we do talk about those topics, too. So if this episode brings up some feelings for you, we have resources in our show notes. Okay, now on to the episode. Hi, Emily. Hi, Hi there. Emily. My name is Hi, Emily. My name and is I'm calling, calling in because... because... I have a question for you. There has to be another way to teach consent that does not, you know, just use the word yes as a stand-in for consent. Uh, Mo, mm-hmm. is, is this actually just from you? Is this... Are you asking for a friend? <laughs> How do you know? I am actually asking this question for me and my girlfriend. I love that. It's a dream come true. If I do nothing else with this podcast, I want to make your personal sex life better. (laughs) I'm Emily Nagoski, and this is the Come As You Are podcast, where I answer questions about sex with science. In this episode, we're talking about consent. And this is an advanced class in consent where we talk about all the nuances and power dynamics. And I want to introduce a concept I call the enthusiastic maybe. All the comfortable, joyful, consensual maybes in sex and how to navigate those. And here with me is the one and only producer, Mo. Hi, Emily. Hello. So this topic, listeners might look at it and think, Oh, I understand consent completely. It's yes and no. It's black and white. At least that is what I learned about consent on a college campus in 2015. Mm -hmm. I was taught that the only kind of consent is a verbal, enthusiastic yes. Yeah. If it's not an enthusiastic yes, then it's an enthusiastic no. That seems to be what young sex educators are teaching now. I I recently took my first foray into TikTok— Sex education? Because you told me there were sex educators on TikTok. And the very first video I saw was like, enthusiastic consent is the only consent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I'm sure you are extremely familiar with the enthusiastic yes model because you were a peer educator on college campuses, right? Yep. Back in the mid-90s, I was. And what I learned to teach was yes means yes, no means no, silence means no, maybe means no, I'm not sure means no, only yes means yes. So to help explain this, sort of enthusiastic consent, you say yes when you want to, when you have no fear of the consequences of saying yes or the consequences of saying no. You are fully free. Right. Like, it's not only that both people are at a yes, you are enthusiastic about the sex. You're super excited about the sex you're having. Mm -hmm. There's a simplicity to the enthusiastic yes is the only kind of consent. And I can see why that is so important for people who are just starting out having sex to learn, like, enthusiastic yes. Like, that's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. But it can't be the end of the conversation I really think it's just the beginning of the conversation about consent. And like you said, enthusiastic, yes, it doesn't encompass the comfortable and consensual maybes that do come up in sex. Yeah. And that is what I want to talk about with you today. I just popped my LaCroix open. <laughs> mm. Delicious. We're not sponsored by LaCroix. I'm just a stereotype. <laughs> okay, Emily, are you ready to hear more about my question? I am. I'm ready. As you know, we spend a lot of time together answering questions from people who call into the hotline. So recently we were talking about this concept of the enthusiastic maybe. Yeah. I was like, hot damn, that's new information for me. And I really love it. <laughs> and then I realized, like, wait, my girlfriend and I are currently in a situation where we need help navigating an enthusiastic maybe in our relationship. Ooh. So how do you feel about helping us? I consent enthusiastically. <laughs> so cheesy. Okay. So my girlfriend, Alex, air quotes Alex, is going to come on the episode a little bit later so you can hear from both of our perspectives. But for now, let me just summarize the situation up at the top. Alex and I were invited to an orgy. Okay. It is our first time being invited to an orgy. And it's a queer, like, ABCD party, anybody but cis dudes. Ugh. And it's organized by one of our friends who's like this queer power connector. And there's a Google form where you fill out your vaccination status and it has all this safety information. But here's our question. So we would only go together. There is not a world where one of us would go without the other one. Now, I am an enthusiastic yes. I want to go. I'm feeling like YOLO. It sounds super fun. Sounds hot. I love it. But my girlfriend Alex is less sure. They're definitely curious about going, but they're nervous. So the orgy is coming up in a few weeks. And every time we talk about if we're going to go, we just like, uh, uh, we don't know what we're going to do. We get stuck at this place where Alex is like, ah. Maybe, but I'm scared. And I'm like, you don't have to go. And they're like, but I kind of want to. I'm just scared. And we, we get like, we just hit an impasse and we say like, okay, we'll, we'll come back to this tomorrow. But it actually seems like we are not equipped to have the level of conversation that we need to have. Um, mm -hmm. And like we said in the beginning of this episode, everything I have learned about consent up until this point 
is like, if it's not an enthusiastic yes from everybody involved, then it can't happen, period. And, you know, Alex is curious and interested, but unsure. Like, they are ultimately a maybe. So the first part of our question is, like, how do we actually handle a maybe in real life? And the second part of our question is that if we go, we're like, oh, shit, this is going to be the consent Olympics. (laughs) Not that it's a competition, of course, but I just mean that we're going to an orgy for the first time together. So if we go, we'll be navigating like our different levels of comfort and enthusiasm. And it, it seems like the kind of situation where we will need to be constantly evaluating and communicating the consent that we have with each other and any new consent that we might be bringing in if, you know, there's someone else involved. It's like, okay, if we're going to go to the Consent Olympics, we need a session with a trainer. Yeah, this is an advanced consent situation, not for beginners. And I feel so thrilled that I get to help you work out this situation. Aww. And I got to say, like, if you're listening and thinking, oh, I'm never going to go to an orgy, so this isn't applicable to me, I, I really think that this concept of enthusiastic maybe is applicable in so many other situations. Yeah. Like, I think it's really common whenever one partner wants to try something new. Like, let's say one partner wants to try watching porn together or having anal sex, having Mm -hmm. a threesome. I think these are really common. And I think those are all times where an enthusiastic maybe might apply. And that's part of the same conversation that we're having here. Yeah. So let's do this thing. Where should we start? Let's begin by making sure everybody's got the very basic basics, Mm -hmm. which is by saying that consent is the starting line, not the finish line. We want to bring our partners pleasure. We want to share pleasure. We want to have good sex, great sex, or brain-melting sex, right? We don't want to listen to a sex podcast to learn to have bare minimum consensual sex. We don't want our partner to wake up in the morning and say, mm, last night was so consensual, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, no. We definitely want that. We definitely don't want the alternative, but... I mean, is that your standard for a great night that was consensual? Uh, Yeah, no. If I had hot sex, it was consensual sex. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, when I was teaching about responsive desire, remember we had an episode on responsive desire. Mm -hmm. It's desire that emerges in response to pleasure rather than in anticipation of pleasure. It became clear that the conversation about consent needed to be more nuanced than just enthusiastic yes. Because the point of responsive desire is your enthusiasm emerges only once you have preheated the oven, right? You have to sort of get started. And you and I have spent a lot of time in this series talking about the dual control model, the brakes and the accelerator. Yeah. And for me, one of the key things about the dual control model is it tells us why and how ambivalence is normal. Mm. We are often in contexts that are full of stuff that activates the accelerator and also stuff that hits the brakes. So you imagine you're 
just at a generic party and you're making out and turned on and lots of accelerator is happening, but also you're here in public and that doesn't seem okay and let's go somewhere else, right? Accelerator and brakes at the same time. Or you're in bed together and it's super hot, but mm, not unless you've got a condom, my friend. Just living in the intensely sex-negative world that many of us live in, a lot of us have culturally imposed shame hitting our brakes kind of all the time. So our enthusiasm is always held back by that feeling that we're not even supposed to be enthusiastic for sex, except that if we're enthusiastic, that's the only time that we're allowed to have the sex. And if you can't get to enthusiasm, then you shouldn't even be saying yes. Yeah, an enthusiastic yes is like a high bar. Yeah, we call it the gold standard. Uh Uh-huh. Another thing I've been thinking about is a lot of times the level of conversation about consent gets brought down, you know, to be a conversation directed at that person who needs to hear, like, don't assault someone. And obviously, I understand why the conversation is catered to that person because they really need to hear that message. But at the same time, if the only conversations we have are the ones that are catered to that person that needs to hear, you know, how to not be violent, then we're losing so much nuance about power, communication, gender, all the things that play into consent. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting to me is like how the cultural definition of consent has changed over time. This is my women's studies degree coming out. But, you know, for my grandmother, it was in 1950, it was like, there is no such thing as consent within a marriage. If you got married, you're consenting. Yeah. And for my mom in the 70s, there was like some no means no jargon. And then for me, when I got to college, there was like enthusiastic verbal yes. Yes means yes. So I was wondering if you could like give me a little cultural history of the definitions of consent. Yeah, that basically tracks. In my original training in the mid-90s, I was taught yes means yes, everything else means no. And that was still pretty progressive at the time. Let me add that uh, marital rape was only finally outlawed everywhere in the United States when I was in high school in the early 90s. Oh, Jesus. We have come a long way fast. Your grandmother might even be legally correct that there was no such thing as non-consensual married sex. Yeah, I bet you're right. I mean, in Louisiana in 1954? On the one hand, we've come a long way fast, and on the other hand, a lot of this stuff just clings, like it will not let go. So about 10 years ago, it was actually exactly 10 years ago, I started talking about willing consent in addition to enthusiastic consent. To make space for responsive desire, Mm -hmm. I learned this language of willing consent from a sex therapist, Suzanne Iacenza, who's in New York City. Um, But a student of mine felt like the word willing leaves too much room for interpretation of, like, willingness could be like, oh, yes, okay, fine, I guess. Like, that's willingness. Like, if you must or, you like, you have a sense of obligation rather than, sure, let's see what happens, which is what I mean when I say willing. So we sort of decided that Open or openness has a warmer connotation of readiness, appreciation, porousness, connection. I've been trying to make it even simpler over the last 10 years, so I boiled it down to this. 
that the key is for everyone to be glad to be there and free to leave with no unwanted consequences. Plus, there's no unwanted pain. And when I say no unwanted consequences, of course I mean no unwanted physical consequences, obviously, but also no social consequences, no emotional consequences. The relationship is not at all at stake. No one has anything to lose. No one will judge you for stopping. Everyone will be completely fine with whatever happens because what matters most to everyone involved is that everyone has a good time. Oh, my God. Okay. Glad to be there. Free to leave without fear of any unwanted consequences. I love that definition. I mean, obviously, there can be physical consequences and violence for saying no. But I also think we don't talk enough about emotional punishment for saying no. Yeah. Like, let's say your partner gets mad at you or gives you the silent treatment or shuts down. Like, those are all unwanted consequences that I think sometimes people fear when they're yeah. they're doing that mental calculus of like, do I want to do this? Or am I just like mm, acquiescing because I don't want to have to deal with the unwanted consequences of saying no? And I know that this is a very binary way to look at it. But like just having had sex with cis men for a few years of my life, I'm like the amount of temper tantrums I had to deal with because they didn't get the sex they wanted is unbelievable. Like so many men are really out there acting like that all the time. Yeah. And that I, I think, you know, free to leave without fear of unwanted consequence is like a very overdue addition to the definition of consent. Exactly. Yeah. And there's actually a lot of advancement happening in this conversation from a relatively surprising source. The asexual community has really been at the forefront of broadening this definition of consent. A few months ago, I got to talk to the journalist and editor Angela Chen. She's asexual, and she wrote a book called Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. She said this thing about consent that I really love. She said, the idea that enthusiastic consent is the only real consent, it essentially casts doubt on the ability of aces, of asexual people, to give consent. Huh. Because, so for a really quick primer, asexuality is a sexual orientation where you are not sexually attracted to anyone, but there are sex-favorable asexual folks who may say a willing or open yes. Uh-huh. I'm also thinking about um, sex work and mm-hmm. sex workers who are consenting, but they might not be enthusiastic. Yeah. A lot of us show for work not enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad you brought up the ace community, the asexual community, and Angela Chin in particular, because I think it underscores this important point that, like, enthusiastic consent is is too blunt of an instrument to try to put onto everyone's personal definitions of what consent feels like to them. Another thing I've been thinking about is this antiquated heterocultural script that is still out there that says, like, to be a quote-unquote good sexual partner, then you need to be willing to try the things your partner wants to try. I struggle with that because obviously sometimes people might fit into that model when they're feeling like 
enthusiastic, maybe, yeah. But I, I think other times that model leaves so much room for like pressure and coercion and emotional manipulation. Like, oh, if you're going to be a good partner to me, I need you to do X, Y, Z thing. That is not the equivalent of the enthusiastic maybe. That's like a sort of cultural script that could overlap with the enthusiastic maybe, but also could overlap with a much darker and non-consensual situation. Yes, that is exactly where the sort of muddiness is. And I just, again, love the definition you have about free to leave without fear of unwanted consequences because it acknowledges like the power dynamics and the motivations behind the words yes and no. Yes, that's that's exactly the goal because it's true that in the real world, not everyone is equally free to say yes or no, right? Mm. Um, in Burnout, the book that I write with my sister, we describe the social expectations for anyone assigned the it's a girl package of rules and regulations. We say that we're assigned the role of being human givers. And we are expected to be at all times without fail. Ready? Here's the list. Yes. Hit it with the list, Emily. <laughs> Morally obligated to be pretty, happy, yet calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. Ding, ding, ding. So if someone is assessing their internal experience, they may notice that on the one hand, eh, they're not really interested in like what their partner is doing and like it could be better. And also, they feel a moral obligation to make their partner happy and make sure their needs are met. So even a situation that everyone is glad to be there, but maybe your partner is touching you in a way that's very well-intentioned, but it's just not doing it for you. And your partner goes, do you like that? What do we say as human givers? Yeah. We're like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rather than saying, actually, a little pressure and a little, uh, little, little more speed would be better. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to hurt our partner's feelings or make them feel criticized. Totally. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, there's the of the binary. There's the people assigned the it's a boy package of rules and regulations. I've started to call them the human winners. Um, Because they're allowed to feel horny, winning, and angry, and that's it. But above all, they're supposed to know everything about sex already without ever asking questions or making mistakes or receiving any feedback. So they're trained to be sensitive to hearing their partner say uh, a little more pressure and a little more speed, and you're basically criticizing their entire identity. And this goes back to the timber tantrum thing. Like, this gender roles thing, it helps explain why some cis men do this, but it does not excuse it. Um, And people of all genders can react that way when they don't get what they want in sex. It's a a twisted mess. And then everyone else, the trans folks, non-binary folks, agender folks, are fed these same binary roles and have to negotiate with their own internal beliefs about what these mean for them, and get clear with their partners about what it means. This is a, it's, it's a mess. Nobody's free. And basically, can we all get our collective act together and quit it with the gender nonsense? Right. I mean, a real complex conversation about consent has to include this conversation about gender roles, about motivations, internal scripts. Um, and 
even within all of those layers, there's that surprising analogy you explained to me about consent being like tea. (laughs) It's imperfect, but I like it. So can you explain the tea analogy a little bit? Yeah. So this was a really viral thing in 2015. There was this blog from Rockstar Dinosaur Pirate Princess (laughs) comparing sexual consent to tea. And they were like, we can all understand that if you offer a person a cup of tea and they say no, you do not require them to drink tea. And if they say yes, and you spend the time boiling the water and brewing the tea and you bring it to them and they change their mind, you still don't insist that they drink the tea, even though you went to all that trouble. You made it. They decided not to drink it. Oh, well. And because the person has come over to your house and had tea with you several times before, that does not mean there any obligation to come and have tea with you again. And for sure, if they, like, pass out between the time they said yes to tea and the time you bring them the tea, you don't pour tea down their throat. We can all get that, right? Yep. One thing I do like about the tea analogy is that it helps frame consent as an ongoing conversation. I love that. And it also is a very easy way to understand that consent to tea isn't consent to biscuits. And honestly, in 2015, that was really important language for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It went super viral for a reason, because it was so straightforward. But it did leave out some really important subtleties. Like, I was thinking, okay, so suppose person A offers tea to person B. Yeah. What are all the things that might be going through person B's head? Are they thinking, "Mm, I want this person's company or approval or friendship? I want to not be rude. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I want to follow the rules of this culture. Maybe I want to tell my friends that I had tea with this person. You know, I would like the sugar in the milk, but I don't want any actual tea. So what I want is a world where person B feels comfortable and confident saying, no, thank you, please, to the tea, but I would enjoy uh, seeing what your teacups look like and uh, enjoying my own cup of sugar and milk. Also, I would really love to watch you drink tea. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, we need to take a break. I need to run to the little podcaster's room. And then when we get back, my girlfriend Alex is going to come on the show and we are going to get your advice, Emily, on navigating this enthusiastic maybe within our relationship. And we're going to get some training lessons for the Consent Olympics. All right. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. 
Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, we are back. And Emily is going to help me and my girlfriend, Alex, navigate this question about should we go to this orgy? (laughs) Hi, Alex. Not your real name, girlfriend. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming and for calling in from the car instead of taking your lunch break. You're the best. So you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be here. Um, glad to have your help, Emily, answering this question. My name is Alex. I'm non-binary. I use they, them pronouns. But one of the great things about being queer and non-binary is that you get to choose the language that works for you, which is why, you know, Mo has been using the words like girlfriend um, and like lesbian for our relationship. Those words are comfy for us, so we use gendered language when it feels comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. I'm so excited. Thank you for helping us, Emily. I'm so excited, too. All right, let's do it. Let's get right into it, then. So, Alex, can you start by explaining how you're feeling about potentially attending this orgy with me and any context, any setup you feel you need to do? Okay, so... Mo and I have been in a relationship for almost three years, and that's been a monogamous relationship. We have not opened that relationship, and we've never had anyone else involved sexually in our relationship. And then we have some really fun friends in our lesbian friend group that have invited us to an orgy uh, later this month. And it seems like a really fun opportunity intellectually. Um, Wait, Wait, really quick. What do you mean by you like the idea intellectually? What does that mean? I like the idea of going Mm, because how many times in my life am I going to be invited to something like this? Um, But when I really think about it, I get really nervous because there's so many unknown factors and I just don't know how I'm going to feel when we're there. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of scared that unexpected feelings will come up. But Mo seems a little bit more confident. (laughs) I mean, yes, I am an enthusiastic yes. I'm excited to potentially go. But again, like this is a decision that we have to make together. The only situation where we will go is one where we are going together. And I want to make sure that when you say maybe, like we really explore what that actually means. So first of all, do you have a sense that Alex, it's okay for you to say no to something when you feel ambivalent? (laughs) That's a tricky question. Um, Mm -hmm. I sometimes feel like I'm not sure if I'm saying yes because it's, you you know, within the context of sex or not. If I was a a request made of me, sometimes I don't know if I'm saying yes because it's truly something I want to do or if it's something I just feel obligated to do. Mm. You know, being raised in the South... Mm -hmm. um, with the, what what is the language that you use? The female, no, the, the I'm a girl package? The it's a girl package. You were raised to be a lady, it sounds like. <laughs> 
Exactly. To be very polite and to always accept the tea when it's offered to you, um, et cetera. Yeah. So I have a hard time, you know, deciphering what I really want and what is expected of me. Mm -hmm. That's so important and no one ever talks about it. I'm so excited we're going there. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of the big reasons we wanted to talk to you, Emily, is because we both (laughs) identify as people pleasers. So when Alex and I have been talking together about if we want to go to this orgy, um, Alex, one thing I have heard you say again and again is like that you're worried it'll be rude if you go and you say no to everyone except for me. Yeah, I mean, okay, I've never done anything like this before. So one of my questions, I guess, is like, is my attendance at this party, this orgy, implying consent to have sex with anyone else who is there? Um, I, I, I know intellectually, mm. no, like I should, I will be able to say no, I have autonomy. If somebody approaches me and I'm not interested, I can say like, no, thank you. But like, there's something in me that I, I just don't know what the, what the social rules of this space are. Um, so that's one thing that is scaring me. Mm. Um, it, is this a space where I could just like Mo and I could do our own thing? Um, in one area of the the room and then kind of just like be witnessed and witness what else is going on. Um, Is that considered rude or are we, are we supposed to participate? Is everyone supposed to have equal participation? (laughs) I guess I'm nervous about like, because it is a friend's house, a friend's party and I'm used to being a good house guest, uh, (laughs) you know, what the expectations are there. So really what you would like is an Emily post (laughs) manual of orgy yeah, etiquette. Yeah, I would love that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Emily Post does not have a chapter on orgy etiquette. <laughs> but the Emily Nagoski guide is probably as close as we're ever going to get. Yeah, I loved etiquette manuals when I was a kid. I'm super into that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like you would never go to a party and have your attendance imply consent for any other kind of behavior. Like, if you come to this party, you are definitely going to have at least four drinks. Or if you come to this party, you must eat the shrimp, (laughs) right? If you are really worried, ask the host about the ground rules. Mm -hmm, We can do that. If there are no ground rules, I'm going to say don't go, but I bet there are. Mm. And then also, when you know what the ground rules are, talk about it between you. Make plans for the things that you expect might be most comfortable or least comfortable. I would also say for the two of you to have a plan for how to stay attuned to Alex's level of ambivalence. Mm -hmm. So while you're there, Mm -hmm. their level of ambivalence is going to move around, their level of comfort, and make a plan Mm -hmm. if you can feel sort of an escalation of the jealousy or the freakout or any of the other things. Like, if surprising feelings come up, which probably it will be surprising. (laughs) Um, And the great thing about a strong relationship, Mo, is you're 100% committed to prioritizing your partner's no above anything, right? Absolutely. Yes, of course. It doesn't matter how into something you are. If your partner comes over and says, this is a no for me. Then it's a no for us, right? You stop. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can do some test runs or at least brainstorming. You can talk through 
the kinds of things you might experience. Um, so Mo, as the less ambivalent partner, can say, okay, so let's imagine someone invites me to do something and have you watch. What are some things that I might do and how might you feel about it? Uh, or you could swap it around. Suppose someone invites you, Alex, to do something with me watching. Or suppose there's someone I'd like to connect with, with you. Talk through all those limits in advance and think through what those situations might feel and be like. Yeah, just sort of um, mix and match scenarios and then talk through how we might react to them together in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, it feels like, okay, touching, body touching feels okay, but like kissing someone else or like seeing Mo kiss someone else feels really intimate. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm pro titty touching, pro <laughs> grinding, all of that. Like, it feels like, okay. you know, you're just dancing in a club. Like, there's just a lot of people mm -hmm. around. Everybody's kind of bumping into each other. That feels fine. And there feels like a sense of anonymity around that, even if I know those mm -hmm. people. But I don't know. Kissing just feels so intimate to me and mm -hmm. uniquely romantic. Uh-huh. Okay, see, this is very good because we have never gotten this specific before mm. in the conversation. Like, I'm totally down to titty touch and grind but not kiss other people. It sounds amazing. It sounds hot. Yeah. But then how do we, like, explain that to someone? So, like, if we were to work through a scenario now, like, okay, we're having, we're doing mm -hmm. our own thing. We're into each other at this party. And someone comes up to us and says, oh, can can I join you guys? How do we say, like, well, yes, you can touch me in this way, in this way, in this way, but not, don't kiss me and don't kiss her, but we can watch us kiss. You know, it's like, feels like a lot of... A lot of no's. <laughs> a lot of information. <laughs> yeah, that's why, you know, these are advanced skills, right? Because the question I'm asked mm -hmm. all the time is, how do I ask my partner for... And this is the same, like, how do I communicate to somebody else at this party what our limits are? And, of course, the answer is you just say... Yeah, our limits mm. is we're, n we're only kissing each other on the mouth and nobody else. We're into titty touching and to grinding. If that sounds good for you, <laughs> what are your rules, right? So the real question is not how do we do it, because how you do it is you just say it. The question is what is it that's stopping you? What is stopping you from saying, uh, right now we are not having tea, we are just having milk and sugar, and we are collecting teacups? Hmm. What would have to happen for you to feel comfortable speaking a boundary like that out loud? Mm. That's a great question. Yeah, what would need to happen? I think it would be helpful for us to work through hypothetical scenarios and also just to have a like an escape route. Heck yes. You know, if if one of us is ready to go, we go. There's no like negotiating like, no, please, I really want to, you know... I don't know. Is that is that wrong to say? No. No, that's no, not great. At all. It's called a hard no. Hard limits. There are soft limits, soft boundaries where you're willing and able to stretch to try and explore and you might hit a hard no and some things are just like a hard no right now. I know that I'm done. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm that's that's part of the language of consent, particularly in the BDSM community, which is another group that has more comprehensive conversations about consent than most folks ever do. And let me, I, I feel as a public health person, I feel an obligation to say that part of your conversation can involve safety levels, like risk of infection increases with different bodily fluids and touching different skin areas. So 
think about what fluids you're willing to share. Is sharing saliva with someone else okay? Is saliva meeting genital secretions okay? Is hands on genital secretions okay? Or do you always want to have gloves on? How about genital to mouth? Uh, how about blood, genital genital rubbing? Or what kind of barriers are acceptable to you? Are dams an acceptable barrier? These are just the basic physical safety questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can crack open other conversations about the emotional safety. Mm, true. And how comfortable do you feel watching your partner with other people? Which behaviors are you okay watching? Which behaviors might you be okay doing while others are watching? Some people are really into exhibitionism. Some people are really into voyeurism. And others are not so much. So one good starting place question is, does Alex feel threatened if their partner is enthusiastically watching another couple make out? Mm. Yeah, I I love this thought experiment. And like intellectually, obviously, I mm-hmm. love Mo. I trust Mo. I feel very secure in our connection and relationship. I do not feel like, you know, if we go to this orgy, Mo's going to run off with someone else and I'll never see her again, you know? Um, yeah, your relationship is not at stake. Yes, exactly. But the reality is, like, I feel like these fantasy and hypotheticals aren't the same as the real thing. And I, I'm like, I'm just not going to know how I feel until I'm there. Until you get there. In the moment. And so, yeah, exactly. And will your body tell you how you feel in the moment? Yes. How much of a delay is there between when you feel something and when you're totally aware that you feel it and can articulate it? Oh, I'm very sensitive. I can. Great. I, I, I get emotional very quickly. Actually, I'm, I'm afraid my biggest fear is that I'll cry at this orgy. <laughs> oh. If you cry, so what? We deal with crying all the time post-sex. It's like it happens. I don't want to be a boner killer for everybody else. One, there are some people who are super into crying in like a good way. <laughs> Two, crying after orgasm is definitely a thing that can happen. So, you know. Not all crying is indicative of just sheer discomfort. But I think the most important thing here is that you have that strong connection with your body. So if you just sustain that welcoming of what your body is saying without worrying about what it should be saying, which it sounds like is like the conflict for you, is on the one hand, this is how I feel. And on the other hand, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing this other thing. Hmm. Have that ambivalence and keep communicating about it. You are two people. You are having two different experiences. Both of them are valid and legitimate and important. And both of them are going to be ambivalent. Right. And again, like, I'm not 100% certain that I will be an enthusiastic yes throughout this whole experience. I'm an enthusiastic yes right now about the idea of it. Like, if we go, we could get there, and all of a sudden, I'm an enthusiastic maybe, or I'm a maybe, maybe, or a no, and you're the yes. Like, I think that's also very much a possibility. Hmm. So, Emily, do you have any final pieces of advice for us? Like, we're going to be talking about this tonight, maybe tomorrow. We're going to be making the decision in the next few days. Do you have any parting pieces of advice about separating our decisions from each other's desires or anyone else's desires. That experience of what you want feeling clouded by what other people want is so, so, so important. And honestly, it's something you only learn to navigate 
by practicing. Mm. And the context where you can practice safely is when there are no unwanted consequences, right? The relationship is not at stake. No one's going to judge you. Everything will be fine no matter what happens. You can practice and make mistakes because there's nothing at risk. There's nothing at stake. And if you decide to go, which you may just decide not to go, and that's fine too. Mm -hmm. But if you decide to go, make a plan for aftercare, for processing the residual feelings in the hours or maybe days or even weeks afterward. Because this is a first-time experience for both of you, my general recommendation for any first-time experience is to go really slowly in your decision-making. <laughs> and it's better to look back on it and wish you had tried something more than to regret that you tried too much. Yeah. Could I ask, what would you say is one important thing, not like the only important thing or the most important thing, but just an important, what's an important thing that you're taking away from this conversation? For me to realize I do not feel insecure about my relationship to Mo or my connection with Mo. And I do not fear <laughs> that Mo is going to run off with someone else. Um, so I think that if I can get to a place with myself where I feel excited about going and mm. um, feel, you know, like it could be a really fun experience, which I do right now, um, I think that's the only thing standing in my way. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And you do not have to go. You are still under no obligation. Oh, I know. I know. I could change my mind five minutes before. I, I Yeah, of course. Yep. I feel like, it, it, whereas before I felt kind of like shameful and embarrassed to, you know, think about it at all. And now I'm feeling a lot more confident and like, dare I say, excited about the opportunity to go. And like, I think it could be really fun. All right, we need to take a break. And Alex, I know you need to get back to work because you have been talking to us during your lunch break. So I just thank you for taking the time and being so honest and like willing to talk about this on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And Emily, this has been so helpful. I feel a lot more confident about this whole conversation and the potential of going. So thank you. I'm really excited and I have a lot to think about. That's so great. It's been really delightful meeting you. Thanks, Alex. When we get back, we are going to highlight some of the major takeaways from our conversation because there are a lot. So we'll be back in a minute. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. 
Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. All right, Emily, so I need a TLDR and some practical advice for my Consent Olympics. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it has been not just basics for beginners, but advanced stuff. So... To recap, enthusiastic consent is the gold standard, absolutely. And also, open consent or willing consent is normal. In fact, my definition of normal sex is when everyone is glad to be there and free to leave with no unwanted consequences. Plus, no one's experiencing unwanted pain. It sounds really simple, But that doesn't always mean it's easy, especially in the context of rigid binary roles, which brings me to point number two. On the day you're born, people look at your genitals and they assign you a list of rules and regulations about who you're supposed to be as a sexual person. If you have the it's a girl package, you're taught to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and unfailingly attentive to the needs of others. And if you get the it's a boy package, you're supposed to be confident and constantly horny and totally incurious because you already know everything there is to know. It is a really toxic combination. And your access to enthusiastic consent will crack wide open when you begin eliminating the gender binary, from your understanding of yourself as a sexual person. Three, ambivalence is normal for two reasons. First, we all have a sexual accelerator that responds to sex-related stimuli, and we all also have breaks that respond to all potential threats. That's the first reason why ambivalence is normal, but also second— We live in a world that fills our heads with mutually contradictory and often shaming messages about sex, and we bring those with us into a sexual context. So it's like our brakes are on kind of all the time, and so we bring ambivalence with us into a sexual context. Fourth, the solution for this, for some people it might be to say no to anything about which they feel ambivalent, and that's great. But another solution is to say yes to the things that you want and to communicate your ambivalence to your partner, work out cooperative strategies so that you can explore at the edges of what feels yes while always having a door open for a no. And one more tip, a little bonus, practice staying over your own emotional center of gravity. The ambivalence may feel like you're oscillating around a center, right? Swinging to the no and swinging to the yes, and that's normal as long as it doesn't knock you down. If you find yourself leaning on your partner to guide you, 
instead of relying on your own internal sense of center, that's a sign that you're out of balance. Take a break then, and start again when you're feeling more centered. If this episode has brought up a lot of feelings for you and you want to process them with someone or just read more about consent, check out the resources in our show notes. Next week, we are going to be answering maybe my favorite question that we've ever gotten on the Come As You Are hotline. Are you supposed to have sex when you get that old? What I'm saying, if you want it, I do want it. Come As You Are is a production of Pushkin Industries and Madison Wells. It's hosted by Emily Nagoski. You can find Emily on Instagram at enagoski and on Twitter at Emily Nagoski. You can also sign up for her newsletter at emilynagoski.com, where she writes about everything from the clitoris in your mind to orgasm after having hysterectomy. It's an incredible newsletter. Highly recommend it. This show is co-hosted and lead produced by me, Mo Laborde. You can find me online at Mo Laborde and on TikTok at podcast.slut. Sorry, Mom. My co-producer on this show is the fabulous Brittany Brown. Our editor is Kate Parkinson Morgan. Sound design and mix by Ann Pope. Executive producers are Mia LaBelle and Letal Malad. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Sophie Crane, Courtney Guarino, Jason Gambrell, Julia Barton, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. At Madison Wells, thanks to Kylie Williams, Elizabeth Goodstein, and Gigi Pritzker. Additional thanks to Rich Stevens, Lindsay Edgecombe, Frolic Media, and Peter Acker at Armadillo Audio Group. Original music for this series was composed by Amelia Nagoski and arranged and recorded by Alexandra Kalinowski. Additional music from Epidemic Sound. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for only $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions or at pushkin.fm. If you subscribe to Pushkin Plus, you can hear Come As You Are and other Pushkin shows ad-free. Very nice. And you'll get episodes a week early. Sign up on the Come As You Are show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.